0: 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're looking tonight. We began last week um, a new Bible study uh, on the life of King David. And David is one of those Bible characters that's uh, a lot of people's favorite character. Um, So many stories from his life that we love to talk about. Fun stories. Some not so fun though. And there are some some dark moments that we'll... uh, we'll look at and we'll, uh, we'll talk through as we get to those in his life. And really his whole life story is a story of what God can do with someone who's willing to uh, follow him and willing to obey him. Last week we saw in the first 13 verses of this chapter uh, the anointing of King David when God officially chose him and designated him to be the next king of Israel. And tonight we're going to be looking at his first royal assignment. Um, that's recorded for us here at the end of chapter 16. Not long after he was anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel, David received this very first royal assignment. The circumstances that he found himself in were not very easy, though. He was going to be living in the company of a crazed monarch. And day and night he would be responsible for calming King Saul's fits of rage. It was a huge responsibility for such a young man, and he was still a young man at this point. As we'll see in the story, he was still under his father's roof and ultimately responsible to his father. But it was a task that God had already prepared David for, and a task that David was more than capable of accomplishing by the grace of God. I want you to think with me tonight as we look at this part of David's story that whatever God calls us to do, we can be certain that God has already prepared us to do it. It's something we can accomplish by the grace of God. And we may feel like we are inadequate, and the truth is that without God we are. Without Him we can do nothing. But if God is calling us to do something, He promises that we will be able to do it with his help, by his grace. So we must determine to always do our best by the grace of God and for the glory of God. David had that determination, and God blessed him greatly for it. Look at verse number 14 of 1 Samuel 16, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him unto me. Then answered one of the servants, and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is a cunning in playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse, and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread, and a bottle of wine, and a kid, and sent them by David his son unto Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Number one, notice from verse number 14, the situation that David found himself in with this royal assignment. It says in verse 14 that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. If you look back at verse number 13, we read there that at the time of David's anointing, the Holy Spirit came upon David from that day forward, never to leave. And then in this very next verse, we learn that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Notice the contrast here that what David gained, Saul lost in the Holy Spirit. Now, an important question to answer is why did the Holy Spirit leave Saul? Was this just arbitrary? Did God, was God just being fickle and saying, okay, now I, I want you to have the Holy Spirit and not you. Or was there a reason behind this? And the simple answer is this. Saul was suffering the consequences of his sin. He had rejected the Lord, and so the Lord had rejected him. And that's not my statement. First Samuel 15, verse 23. Look back, just may not even need to turn a page in your Bible. First Samuel 15, 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. He hath also rejected thee from being king. Now, the evidence of that rejection was the departure of the Holy Spirit from Saul. Now, understand we're in the Old Testament times as we look at this story here And in the Old Testament, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was different than it is now in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on certain people at certain times to do certain things. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer at the moment of salvation, never to leave again. He is the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment, as it were. He is the one who seals us in Christ. And his ministry to us is permanent. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't. The Holy Ghost came and went at certain times and certain seasons. And David saw what happened to a person when the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit was taken away. And it wasn't a pretty picture. He witnessed the effects of the loss of the Spirit. And it must have made quite an impression on him. Many years later, when he would be writing his own confession psalm, he would say this in Psalm fifty-one, eleven, In prayer to the Lord, he said, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He saw what had happened when someone lost the Holy Spirit, and he was afraid, he had a genuine fear that that might happen to him. Now, in place of the Holy Spirit... Notice what verse 14 says. It says Saul had an evil spirit from the Lord. That spirit that came in place of the Holy Spirit was characterized by anger and rage and a total lack of peace in Saul's life. You look at Saul's story from here on out and you see a man who is paranoid and murderous. On three separate occasions, he would try to kill David in his own Court in his own house, he would throw a javelin at David to try and kill him. He would chase David through the wilderness weeks and months on end. He became just an absolute tyrant. Now, how do we reconcile this passage that says this evil spirit came from the Lord with a passage like James chapter 1, verse 13, which says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Kind of seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? How do we reconcile these? Well, we can say conclusively from Scripture that God did not make Saul sin. He did not make Saul sin or think sinful thoughts. We can also conclude this was not a demonic spirit if it was something of the Lord. God's never going to take credit for something that the devil is doing so what is this spirit this evil spirit well when you see the word spirit here in this context it might be helpful to think of it as an attitude or an inclination and furthermore this evil spirit was the direct result of the holy spirit's absence in Saul's life you can't separate the two here so there's a direct connection between the Holy Spirit leaving and this evil spirit being present the restraint of the Holy Spirit had been removed from Saul's life and in its place was the unbridled inclination of Saul to rebel previously the Holy Spirit was there holding him back no longer Now Saul has no restraints. This is really a classic example of God giving someone over to a reprobate mind, like Romans chapter 1 talks about. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 1. Let me just emphasize that, that God was not the cause of Saul's sin. Romans chapter 1 says, verse 21, speaking of the ungodly, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now skip down to verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Here's the principle. If a person persists in thinking and acting sinfully, God reserves the right to remove any restraints And let them feel the full consequences of their sin. That's God giving someone over to the path that they have chosen. Saul had chosen to rebel against God on multiple occasions. And God said, okay, then I'm removing the restraints. I'm going to let you take the path that you've chosen in all of its ugliness. God did the same thing to Pharaoh, by the way. Pharaoh hardened his heart five times, and five times God hardened it for him. Why? Because that was the path that Pharaoh had chosen. God did it to Judas Iscariot. Judas decided that he would betray the Savior, and God gave him over to that and allowed him to feel the full effect of his sinful choices. This evil spirit is from the Lord in the sense that God in his sovereign providence is allowing Saul to reap all that he had sown. He had sown to the flesh repeatedly without remorse or repentance. And of the flesh, he reaped corruption, just as Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says. So that's what it means when it says an evil spirit from the Lord. God didn't make him sin. Saul had chosen to sin. And God said, okay, if that's the path you want to go down, I'm not going to stop you. That's the situation. But let's notice number two, the servant's suggestion from verses 15 through 17. Can you imagine being a servant in the court of King Saul? I mean, he's literally going crazy. It's a spiritual problem, but it's affecting his mood, it's affecting his behavior, it's affecting how he's ruling the kingdom, it's affecting everything. We know that he was uh, uh, prone to these uh, outbursts of rage and and anger, even to the point of trying to kill people. To say it would have been a little bit stressful was an understatement. I don't know if you've ever uh, worked with uh, someone or maybe had a boss who had a temper problem, but it's not fun they come bellowing through the shop, like, oh boy, everybody hide, you know. And so the servants, seeing what's going on, it says in verse number 15, they said to him, to the king, behold now an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. You know, our sin does not only affect us, it affects everyone around us, everyone whose life we touch in any way, our sin affects them. And so it was in the case of King Saul. The servants saw what was happening to him and they knew at least some of the backstory. Surely they were aware at least a little bit of the goings-on between Saul and Samuel and all of that turmoil that was there. And they understood to some degree at least that the problem with King Saul was a spiritual problem because they said an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. This has got to be a spiritual problem. So they had a little bit of understanding there. However, their suggestion was to treat the symptom instead of solving the problem. What did they say in verse 16? They said, let's find a musician who can come in and play nice music when you're feeling bad and it'll make you feel better. That's what it amounted to. They suggested that Saul would find this musician who could come and play soothing music when these fits would come on him, and they rightly reasoned that it would help alleviate the symptoms of Saul's condition, but it would have been far better for them to have suggested that the king repent and get right with God, because that would have solved the problem. That would have been a lasting fix, but it's almost certain that Saul wouldn't have listened. Because the ungodly do not want to be told that many of their problems are the result of their sinful choices. They hate hearing that. They don't want to be held responsible for their, the consequences of their choices. They want everybody else to bail them out. They want to live however they want to live and not suffer the consequences of it. And so you, you tell people in our culture, and our society, hey, you know, if you would do things differently, then maybe things would be better. Well, that makes you intolerant. You know, statistically, the one choice that makes the largest difference in total outcomes of, of, of families and children, I'm talking about um, less poverty, uh, more better education, better jobs, more stability, better health, all the way around for everybody in the family. You know, the one choice that makes the biggest difference, wait until you're married to have children statistically. Wait till you're married to have children. If people do that statistically, 80 to 90 percent of the time, the outcomes are far better than the other group. But you know what you say to that through the world? And they say, well, that's just old fashioned. That's just out of date. That's just uh, you're intolerant. You, you and all of these other uh, names that they will call us for that. No, that's just the facts. Statistically, look it up. It works. But you tell people that and they don't want to hear that. No, we need this program, we need that program to to alleviate the symptoms. We don't want a solution to the problem. And that's what the world wants. They want a band-aid to cover the wounds. They want an anesthetic that will dull the pain. They want to treat the symptoms, but they don't want to solve the problems. And listen, as Christians, we are no different in our tendency to seek for a some kind of a painkiller for the symptoms instead of dealing with the real problem. We have the same tendency. We're like Esau. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau when Jacob tricked his dad into giving him the blessing? Remember, Esau comes in from the field and he's like, hey, dad, I'm, I'm here. I killed this deer and I cooked it for you. And, and Isaac's like, what do you mean? I thought you were just here. And it was like, oh, wait, that was, that was Jacob being a trickster again. And Esau got very upset because his dad had given the blessing to Jacob. And so he's, he's begging his dad to bless him. And his dad's just like, I'm sorry I've already given the blessing to him. I don't have much blessing left to give you. And Esau, who had lived his whole life catering to his flesh, who had sold his birthright for a bowl of beans, is now crying, literally, to his dad for a blessing. But you know what Esau never did in that story? He never actually repented of his sin of being a carnal and sensual man. And Rome, or rather, Hebrews 12, 17 says, For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he, that is Esau, was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And we have people today who are down on their knees crying and begging for a solution to the symptom but you give them the solution to the real problem and they don't want to hear it and that's what happened here it was hey let's get a musician in and make you feel better well the music therapy they suggested would work to calm the king's mood but it could never bring lasting peace to his heart it never did to his death Saul was never at ease Because this kind of peace that lasts can only come from God when we are saved, number one, and walking with him in a right relationship. Romans 5.1 Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Look, that's something reserved for Christians only, people who are saved. And Philippians four tells us that we can be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let a request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep our hearts and minds, guard our hearts and minds. Saul couldn't have that peace, because he wasn't right with God. He never repented. Saul had forfeited God's peace with his repeated rebellion. Let me just say at this point that as we seek to help others, and by the way, I don't doubt the sincerity of the servants here. I think they really wanted to help the king. Maybe a little bit selfishly because they were tired of dealing with it, but I think they really wanted to help him. But as we seek to do that, we need to remember something, that peace with God is the only permanent solution to life's problems. Peace with God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer. Number three, let's notice next the son of Jesse. So the servants say, let's find somebody who can play for you. In verse 17, Saul said, hey, I got a good idea. Let's find somebody who can play for me. The servant said, hey, that sounds like a great idea, king. I'm glad you thought of that. I don't know if that's exactly how it went, but it seems that way when I read the story. And so in verse number 18, one of the servants speaks up and says, hey, I know a guy, a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And he gives quite the resume here of David. Now this was no coincidence. This was God's providence. God had providentially arranged for this servant to have previously met David and gotten to know some things about him. Providentially arranged for that servant to be present for this conversation. This is not a coincidence. This is God working. So the servant suggests this Boy, this son of Jesse, who had quite a reputation. Notice the qualifications that were given here. Look at verse 18. I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is a cunning and playing and a mighty, valiant man and a man of war and prudent matters and a comely person. And the Lord is with him. Uh, You single ladies, write that down. That's what you want your husband to be right there. It's a good shopping list for you. You married men, you be that kind of guy for your wife. Okay. Let's look at this resume. First of all, he was a skilled harp player. Now that was number one. They were looking for a musician. And he said, "Oh, I know a guy, son of Jesse. He is a very he is cunning in playing." The word "cunning" there is the idea of very, very skilled. He was good at it. Now listen, talent isn't everything, but whatever you do, you should do your absolute best at it. Okay, David was an excellent musician. And he didn't get that way magically. It came through practice. Hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. If you're going to serve the king, you should work your hardest and do your best. That's what it boils down to. Whether it's King Saul or King Jesus. Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatsoever the hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there's no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Number two, he was a strong man. He was a mighty, valiant man. Now David was not very old yet. He was probably mid to late teens at this point, but he had already distinguished himself as a mighty man of valor. It's possible that His exploits with the bear and the lion have already taken place, and maybe those stories have gotten around. You remember those stories he told to Saul right before he went out and fought Goliath? You know, he killed a bear and a lion, barehanded. David was not a sissy, understand. Yes, as one author put it, he was a musician, a man of music, but he was also a man of muscle. We need more young men like David today who have brain and brawn. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. There's nothing godly about physical weakness that's a result of slothfulness or a lack of discipline. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul said, I keep my body and bring it unto subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. But number three, he was a soldierly man. It says he was a man of war. Now, there's no record of him actually being in the army yet. How did he just get this reputation? Well, it's possible that as uh, he was doing his job of tending the flock, that there were occasions where he had to fight off those who would try to steal and rob uh, from uh, his family flock. Maybe it was uh, he had distinguished himself as a a guy who could uh, hold his own in a fight. He had a reputation of being a tough man to beat, the kind of guy that you would want to take into battle. It's also possible that he had actually um, had to do the same thing defending against the Philistines, as there's other indications that at times they would come in and and raid the family farms, and maybe he'd been involved in some skirmishes there. But this is going to be one of the most important characteristics of David for much of his life, a man of war, the ability to fight. He knew how to fight. He didn't go looking for a fight. He didn't go picking fights, but he knew how to handle himself. I don't believe God's going to call any of us to attack the Philistines. But you know, we have been called to a fight. We've been called to fight the good fight of faith. And we need to be good soldiers, as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He was a soldierly man. But notice number four, he was a smart guy. It says he was prudent in matters. He knew how to take care of business. He knew how to practice good discretion. He was a kind of guy that you could rely on to get things done. You didn't have to hold his hand and come behind him and make sure that, you know, he had done what you asked him to do. You know, not everyone is blessed with the same level of intellect, but everyone should do their best that they have with whatever faculties God has given them. There are some people that You know, they just have a gift for retention and recall of certain knowledge and information and facts. Others of us, we have to work a little harder. But wherever we are on that spectrum, we should study and learn as best we can. There's no excuse for being ignorant. And the most important thing for us to learn and to study, of course, is about God and God's Word. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, 1 Peter 3.15 says. Then number five, he was sharp-looking. Says he was a comely person. Comely person. He wasn't a feminine sissy, but rather a good-looking guy. And this speaks, by the way, not only of his appearance, but also his demeanor and how he carried himself. He knew how to behave so that his demeanor was not a distraction to his duties. It's not just physical appearance here. Each of us needs to be careful that we behave properly in a way that honors the Lord. 1 Timothy 3, 15, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. There's a right way to behave. There's a wrong way to behave. He was a sharp-looking guy, a comely person. But most importantly, number six, David was spiritually minded. Notice the last qualification here. It says that the Lord is with him. That's the key right there. All of those other characteristics, they were great, they were good, but they wouldn't have meant a thing if it wasn't for this one. The Holy Spirit came upon David when Samuel anointed him, and it was evident. It was evident. People saw it. People noticed it. Those around him looked at David and said, the Lord is with him. It's kind of like Joseph, God making all that he did to prosper. People saw David's life, and they concluded God's doing something with him. God is with him. David was, by the way, very careful to make sure that people around him knew that anything good in his life was the Lord's doing. Again, in the next chapter, chapter 17, when he would talk to Saul about fighting Goliath, David said, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. David said it was God, it was the Lord's doing. Now you look at this resume. Who could argue with a resume like that? He was the perfect man for the job. But there's something much more important than that. That this is God working in David's life to give him his very first lesson in running a kingdom. David was going to be the next king. He needed to learn some things before he took the job. And so God is supernaturally, sovereignly working out details here for David. So they immediately send word to Jesse and tell him to send David down. Jesse sends David with a a load of gifts and provisions. David would come to the king's court, and he would have a front row seat in the classroom of royal governing, Paid for, by the way, by the king that he would replace. That's a God thing. Whatever God calls you to do, he will enable you to do it. Until Samuel showed up in Bethlehem and anointed David, David had no idea he would ever be king. For all he knew, he would be a shepherd the rest of his life. But David applied himself and did his best at all that he did. And God used all of that to prepare him for the future. Whatever God calls you to do, he will enable you to do it. First Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. So notice with me finally the service of the king from verses 21 through the end of the chapter. David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. That is, Saul loved David greatly, and he, David, became Saul's armor-bearer. David made an immediate impression, a positive one, on King Saul, and that's seen by his instant promotion. As soon as he gets there, Saul says, I like this guy. I want him to be my armor-bearer. An armor-bearer was a position of honor and prestige. It meant being close to the king, even into battle, going with him into battle. And so this was quite the honor. I mean, it was a promotion for David to go from being a shepherd to being um, a servant in the king's court. But now he's going to be a soldier. He's going to be an armor bearer for the king. And then in verse number 22, Saul sent word back to Jesse, requesting permission for David to stay with him indefinitely. Let him stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. Which, of course, obviously his father uh, allowed. Now, what I want you to notice with me is this. David did not scheme or manipulate to gain these honors. They were given to him by God. God was the one that promoted David. You know, so many people are obsessed with climbing the corporate ladder, whatever situation they're in. It's always about I gotta get to the next level, I gotta go to the next a little bit higher, a little bit more. And so obsessed with personal promotion. You know, Psalm 75 verses 6 and 7 says, For the promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth one down and setteth up another. You concentrate and focus on doing your best at whatever you do and trust God with the promotion. God saw to it that David was in the right place at the right time to get the right training and do the right thing. That God was working in David's life is also seen not only in his promotion, but also in his playing of the harp. That was the primary task that he was given. In verse 23, it says that when this evil spirit would come upon Saul, that David took the harp and played. And notice the last phrase. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. This was his main job. And he did that job successfully. He would play, and the music he played was soothing and was refreshing to Saul. He did his job, and he did it well. And not for Saul's sake, and not for his sake, but for the Lord's sake. That ought to be our attitude. That whatever we do, we're going to do it well. We're going to do it the best of our ability. We're going to give it our all. Not for our sake or anyone else's, but the Lord's. Colossians 3.22 says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Now let me just say something very quickly about music specifically. Because it was music that David used to soothe Saul's mood. Music is a very powerful influencer. Every Hollywood director understands the power of music. Some of the greatest movies of all time would never have been the hits they were if it weren't for the movie soundtracks that went with them, that we associate with them so closely. And the directors in Hollywood understand that. They work closely with the composers to make sure that the music matches the mood. Secular musicians understand the power of music to influence. They use the styles of music they do to create feelings and moods that match the messages of their songs, which more often than not, are not good in godly messages, but they understand the power of music. The only people who seem to deny the power of music to influence are Christians who want to listen to ungodly music. That's the only crowd of people that that says, oh, music is nothing, it doesn't matter. Everybody else says, no, there's power in music. And it's illustrated for us right here. To deny the effect that music has is foolishness. The question we need to ask is what kind of effect does my music have on me? Is it spiritually refreshing or does it appeal to my flesh and my feelings? Is it spiritual or is it sensual? David played good music that refreshed Saul's soul. And he was well. Now, David's career as a musician would continue throughout his life. The book of Psalms is filled with songs that he wrote. He was very good at what he did. And it was his skill in music that God used to open doors for David that may never have been opened for him otherwise. Think about that. What was the primary characteristic they were looking for? What was the, the one thing they needed? Someone who was good at playing music. David was the man. He had all these other character traits too. All these other qualifications. But it was his skill in music that God used to get him in this position. You know, whatever God's called you to do, He has already equipped you to do it. He's given you the training and experience you need to do the task that you need to do right now. You say, well, I've... What about this other thing down the road? Well, we're not there yet. When you get there, God will have given you what you need for there. But for now, God's given you what you need. You may not feel like it, but that's the truth. He's put you where you are to do what you're going to do, and he's going to make sure that you have what you need. But there's, an also, there's another part of this. Think with me. That also means that whatever God is doing in your life currently is preparation for the future. We prepare for tomorrow by doing our best today. Like Jesus, David wasn't half-hearted about anything. He gave his full focus and energy to whatever task was at hand. And whatever we do, we should do it with our might as well. And do it for the glory of God. Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all, even if it's playing a harp out on the hillside watching a bunch of stinky sheep. Do all to the glory of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the instruction, the help, the encouragement that we find in it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to give our all in everything we do for your glory. Trusting you for the promotion as you see fit in your time and in your plan. May we not obsess about those kinds of things. May we just give our, our, our attention to doing our best to honor you in all that we do. I pray in Jesus' name.